0: Have you suffered from eco-anxiety or grief? How can we be imperfect environmentalists? And how can we navigate the interconnectedness of justice, veganism, and zero waste? Big questions that we're deep diving into with Azaias Hernandez, commonly known as Queer Brown Vegan, an environmental educator who loves to unlearn and is going to help us do the same today. It's time to Live Wide Awake. Hey, it's Def Dixon and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. This is a podcast about climate change and consciousness, sustainability and spirituality. Each week, a special concoction for your listening pleasure so that you can lead your most conscious life. We're gonna be talking about fascinating yet sometimes complicated topics and breaking them down into digestible chunks so that we can live wide awake. If you haven't already, do hit that subscribe button. And if you love what you're hearing, consider supporting us on Patreon. Isaias Hernandez is a queer, brown, and vegan environmentalist. He makes accessible environmental educational content in the form of colorful graphics, illustrations, and videos. He really is wanting to provide a space for like-minded environmentalists to further conversations around the climate crisis, but in a welcoming and safe online space. He's a graduate of UC Berkeley's Environmental Science Program and a council member of the Intersectional Environmentalist Platform. In this episode, we talk about the spectrum of climate emotions, how we can normalize being imperfect and making mistakes, and creating healthy boundaries and communities online. Well, thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. I'm really looking forward to diving into all of these very important topics with you. And I'd love to start with you just sharing a little bit about your journey and what it was that drove your initial interest into environmental work.
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much again for having me. And hello, everyone. My name is Isaias Hernandez. I'm an environmental educator and creator of CareerBound Vegan. And I think for me, what really kind of got me started my journey was that I grew up in Los Angeles in a low income community, grew up in affordable housing my whole life. And I remember my parents had immigrated from Mexico to the United States in the 1980s. And so for us growing up in the 90s, I remember a lot of the times not being allowed to go outside due to the air quality, living nearby six toxic facilities a few blocks up and then a few streets down was my elementary school. And I just remember a lot of the times asking myself like why my community was designed this way. And when I would visit different types of cities in the area where I live in the San Fernando Valley, I remember being told like, oh, this is where rich people live. And like where you go with rich areas, they have more opportunities and that's because they're rich, they work for it. And so I was kind of told this like kind of narrative growing up of like, you know, if you work hard enough, you can get here. But for me, I think at a young age, I started asking like, why is it the fact that the environment is a privilege? And one of the most really strong examples for me in life was that I remember we went to an ocean conservation beach cleanup in my elementary school and the area was Malibu. And so I remember we were there. And of course, there's more families that are upper middle class and generally not as I think it was diverse during that time, kind of. And so I remember asking, why do we have to come to these rich communities to pick up their trash? Why don't they come to pick up their trash in our communities? And so I remember the teacher pulled me aside and told me I was being very disrespectful. And so that kind of led me to ask more questions growing up. But I kind of felt ashamed knowing that like I wasn't maybe smart enough to ask these types of questions. And so when I was presented about terms about climate change, global warming, it was almost presented as if it was an othering somewhere that was like siloed or something that's like it's happening somewhere else. So you don't need to worry about it. And so that really kind of spurred my curiosity to ask more questions. And it was until I was 17 when I learned about Environmental justice, and they talked about my community experiencing a lot of injustices when there was an assembly from an environmental justice org. And that kind of started asking me, like, okay, like it is actually a lot of people talking about this. Like a lot of people have been asking these types of questions. And so when I went to college, I did environmental science and learned how much elitist academics was and how inaccessible it was. And I really felt a lot of the times demonized in a lot of research spaces. It wasn't really diverse. I really faced different microaggressions. And so I told myself graduating that I did not want to make this career out of being privatizing information and rather than wanting to make it public and free for everyone. And so that led me to do career brown being and to kind of talk about my experiences, but also include cultural-based experiences with a lot of the terminologies to help people understand how that relates back to their communities. And so that's how it really got me started across my work.
0: Mm, thank you so much for sharing. And Yeah, that's uh, so interesting, all the little moments, right, that kind of built up and that you were able to question from such a young age. And it's so sad that you weren't in a supportive area where they could properly answer and and they just kind of made you feel bad about it. So over the years, you know, since you've kind of c- connected all these dots together, have you sort of had to unpack a lot of that stuff and and how now are you feeling about the work you're doing and, and being able to, I guess, yeah. democratize <laughs> knowledge in the way that you're doing now?
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges was the fact of like, I told myself you have to get an environmental science degree to be an environmentalist. And so Mm -hmm. my parents as immigrants being undocumented really were pushing that narrative. Like you have to get an education. You have to go to college. And that was the same expectation for my brother and older sister. And so... For me, I realized that like unpacking that required me to look into my own biases and really understanding that. But on the second hand, when I was an academic in school, I remember this amount of competition of how it rewarded a lot of students that just came from higher academic resource backgrounds and kind of rewarded them for knowing the definition of what a terminology meant. But in reality, they didn't know how to apply it. They didn't know how to communicate it with anyone. And so for me, I realized that Although I had a hard time understanding and deconstructing academics and its language, I realized something that was so much easier on my end was to communicate that and tell people what it meant to me and allow them to share it rather than using this textbook definition that sometimes didn't really make sense for a lot of people growing up. And that really, I think that really validated a lot of my pain and like experiences and confusion, trauma, like happiness, sadness. And that, that really led me to finish my degree But one of the things I also did admit is that when I graduated, I didn't feel right to go back to my community and act like a savior because I realized that there is a difference from where I grew up versus now. You know, I have a college degree. I have had access to these resources, and doesn't matter if I grew up low income, I had the privilege to attend a university. And so for me, I realized, you know, to kind of not level it out, but more more like, okay, how does this look like through a community level that does not present you as a savior? I said to myself, well, online mediums really give people space to develop their own community, their own work. And so I saw that as a way to really give back to my community rather than me entering these spaces. And so part of my space was to realize that it's not about me being ready to be right, but instead to be ready to be wrong. Because being wrong allows you to be accountable and allows you to unlearn and learn. And so that's one of the things that I felt like I had to unpack throughout my ages of 18 to 21 from the academic experience. Now from 21 to 24, I was in this new um, era of like, what does it mean to be an environmentalist? And what does it mean to give back to your community and redistribute resources and privilege at the same time? So that was a bit of like an unpacking time for me.
0: Mm, yeah, no, very important work and reflection there. And so, you know, you talk about yourself as an environmental educator now, and as you said, you love unlearning and learning. So, what does that really mean and look like for you? Like, you know, you talked about unpacking biases. So, what were the biases that you even found that you had and what are some of the biggest things that you've unlearned during this journey?
1: Yeah, you know, I think one of the biggest things for me is like recognizing like who I'm centering and like what I'm talking about. And so when it comes to privilege, you know, and asking myself, I am someone who is queer, yes, but I am someone who's a male identifying and also to, I center myself and also how do I uphold ableism, for example. And so part of that for me was looking into the fact of like, as someone who is able-bodied, how am I providing more spaces for those who have disabilities without providing this savior complex. And so for that, that looked into me decentering myself. And so an example of that is to really look back and read of like, how are you upholding ableism? How are you doing this and reading articles online? And it was things like that where it's not about me asking people who are disabled, but me really educating myself and doing the work to say, what are ways that you can become more accessible? And so part of that was, of course, on social media, right? Uh, adding closed captioning to a lot of my content because that wasn't really something that I thought about. It was an afterthought. And so now it's at the forefront of my thoughts of like adding captioning first. Other things like that, I guess you could say, is who am I talking about from a Western perspective? Because most of the times, those that are outside of the West don't even have the rights to advocate for what they're thinking or don't have the freedom to share it. So, how do I decenter my platform and allow others to use it? And so I've had the privilege to really collaborate, but also team up with other activists and organizations outside of the West and to really share my platform in that sense. And um, really two organizations, and three actually, is one called Black Girl Environmentalists, Pass the Mic, and Badass, Badass Activist Collective that did this really great campaign. And they're still doing it to really amplify different types of activists in environmentalism that maybe not have the platform to talk about their work or their mission or what they need. And so it's continued on just from Black History Month and this week, this month, and Women's History Month. And so how do we really relay that and have this constant active conversation that's not a one-time thing, uh, but something that's really actively thought. And so that is something that I feel like a lot of my biases, I didn't really think about this or really put this at the center of my thoughts. And that's because it also goes back to my own privileges that I hold. And so um, it's not about shaming oneself, but holding yourself accountable about like if you're going to say you're excessive, if you're going to say you're, um, creating equitable space. Like, are you actually creating those spaces for people?
0: Mm. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, I love, you know, the collaboration and cross-cultural collaborations and just the ability of the internet to connect people in this space and in such a welcoming way and such a constructive and supportive way. And we're definitely going to circle back to that. But for now, I wanted to zoom out a little bit because there are kind of three main topics that you list that you sort of discuss through your channels, and that's environmental justice, veganism, and zero waste. So I'd love to understand a little bit about how they intersect for you, why that's important and how you sort of developed this niche as well, you know, because it's pretty specific, but also, you know, you've got three very uh, interesting topics that you're covering there.
1: Yeah. So I think for one is like the fact that veganism to me is a more of a circular relationship and an ethical lifestyle that advocate for both humans and non-humans. And so asking ourselves to actively be anti-racist and anti-species in this movement and recognize the extractive systems from capitalism um, that have polluted and damaged a lot of our planet. And the reason why I focus on this is because environmental justice, for example, that advocates for healthy communities, very healthy healthy access to water, air, and soil. Um, A lot of times we focus on, yes, a lot of cities, a lot of communities, but we don't really make those interconnections sometimes about how our food production system is created, like industrial agriculture. We see that here in the United States that um, a lot of undocumented farm workers are victims of this industry and also animals being slaughtered. And so how do we really reconcile with the fact uh, that these industries are just continuously harming black indigenous people of color and also polluting the local communities nearby that are already economically suppressed? And so With that, that also extends with zero waste is that I don't really see zero waste as like reducing your plastic. I see it as a human's right issue in the sense of the original definition of zero waste was to essentially look at how products in the petrochemical industry design products that are not circular. And so if we want to create products that are circular, we need to recognize how is it good for the planet? that looks into, that it doesn't have a negative discharge into communities of color and also living species. And so um, that is part about my work is that I wanted to really extend myself to say, look at what's happening of like plastic pollution, not just that it's harming ecosystems and the fish and um, beautiful marine species, also poisoning low income communities of color, especially uh, in countries in Asia where they're generally blamed to have high rates of plastic But in reality, a lot of the Western countries are responsible for shipping their plastics to these countries. And so for me, it's looking into all of these intersections that are intertwined, but also bringing in people to understand that it's not about shaming you into going to vegan or thinking about environmental justice, but to recognize that we cannot separate these issues as singular, but we have to see them as multivariable issues that are part of this formula in order to really take ourselves away from these extractive systems.
0: Mm, And so how do you advise people to kind of get their head around it, right? Because there's so many layers there for everything you've just shared. And that's a very high level overview, super important. And yet it's so complicated. So where do you kind of help people to break that down so that they can really start to understand the topics, but also sort of start to embody actions that are going to help within their lives as well?
1: I think for me, one of the biggest things I would advocate is to look into the history of movements, right? Look into the history of environmental justice, right? We can look into how it started to originate, especially in the 1960s with the civil rights movement here in the United States, where a lot of Black and Indigenous brown communities were advocating that how toxic pesticides in their farming practices were poisoning and hurting their communities and so how does that relate to the environment when it comes to zero waste I think it's great to understand the history of plastics I mean like where does plastics originate from what were they essentially designed for and like why is it that recycling systems exist today and when it comes to veganism asking ourselves like not to look back into the 1940s of how a white man coined this term but looking into the fact of like how different religious and cultures and spiritual practices do practice veganism in different ways. And that's defined differently. And I think that when you're able to understand each of those histories in your own timeline, then you can start making understandings of like, okay, so once I understand the history of plastics, histories of veganism, history of environmental justice, let's look into one that intersects with them too first, which is industrial agriculture, and environmental justice okay so then we look into those relationships and then we bring in plastic pollution that's been you know we can all agree that we've seen so much images of fish uh, mammals sea, uh, marine animals um, having plastics up their nose with the turtle example and so like understanding how these are all intertwining systems and so part of the work i do is to create that siloed i guess not siloed but that singular topic to lure people in to extend themselves to learn about it and then once they're there they're able to ask these types of questions or their curiosity is, is activated that allows them to kind of dig into that work and then once they're doing that work they're just like oh my god i realize these interconnections connections out. and sometimes i get messages from people saying i didn't understand what you said at first but now i'm finally understanding it and so that's a part of what environmentalism is is delving into these systems
0: Spoken like a true educator, going back to the history, but it's so true. And I love that people also reach out to you when they have those epiphanies and those aha moments when it all falls in place, because knowledge really is power. And I think you're using your platform to give people so much knowledge and at the same time there you know it really does make so much more sense when you look back at the history and the timeline of these issues so i absolutely love that that was a fantastic answer and uh i guess one thing that that's always discussed well not always but one thing that's quite often brought up is that being environmental or going zero waste is expensive. This is like common narrative and a lot of bias in this space. And of course, this comes down to a lot of white perspectives. And so why do you think this is the case? And how is this different to the BIPOC perspective? Maybe you can share for those that maybe aren't quite sure yet. And how can we do more to change this conversation?
1: Yeah. I think that when it comes to this like plastic free lifestyle, I think perfectionism upholds unrealistic standards, right? It's really unrealistic illusions of ourselves that we think that we can be. And this is also rooted in social media, how we compare ourselves with celebrities, influencers, our friends. You know, we see these photos of happiness, but in reality, it's like no one really is at that point, maybe. Or they, you know, they're going through things, but... I think when it comes to zero waste, plastic free lifestyles, I think one of the biggest issues is how social media and news outlets has generally centered a lot of white voices in this movement. And this is obviously to hate B. Johnson that is known as the mother of zero waste because, you know, she was looking into this lifestyle. She wanted to do this and she's probably an amazing person. But I think one of the dangers of that is that when you ignore history of zero waste and you look back at a lot of indigenous cultures that had a very regenerative practice of using natural resources in a circular way that even use, you know, from their waste systems into the planet, into the earth to grow food, you kind of disregard that. And so when it's now packaged as this like consumerist lifestyle, the depiction of, you know, conscious consumerism is kind of depicted in these people. And so a lot of the times now the conversations are just generally focused of like, yes, plastic pollution is important. We have to do our thing, right? Which is great. They're contributing to inspiring people to do lifestyles, but there really isn't that much much more conversation or depth to ask themselves or challenge themselves of like, yes, plastic is a pollution. Yes, we want to ban plastic straws, but what does, what really matters from this movement? Like what is the issue that we're trying to tackle and so I think some of what the zero waste lifestyle movement is limited in is actually advocating people to do local and system change. It just stops at individual change and maybe signing petitions and that checking to local governments. And so part of the fact is that because people are generally represented white, don't want to talk about race or sometimes it maybe make them uncomfortable to be quite frank to talk about race and maybe they don't think they're experts in race and so they shy away from those conversations but in reality it further like you said it further taints people and so when people think about zero waste they just think about plastic free lifestyles but don't think about how we advocating for human and non-human justice of life of like how do we stop these industries and so that is kind of like my take of how the lifestyle movement is very damaging and very influential in shifting people's mindsets of um, this kind of more community justice-centered lens to a rather individual, glamorous lifestyle that doesn't really move forward with conversations. Mm
0: -hmm. And I guess from your perspective... How have you taken everything that's happened in the last 12 months in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement and communities coming out and way more conversation on intersectional environmentalism and the work you're doing are you seeing big shifts and people coming back around and, you know, be willing to actually say, oh, hey, look, I was wrong about this. I made mistakes. Or are you still seeing a lot of pretense and, uh, you know, dancing around topics? I'd be really curious to understand how you're viewing this space and because you're quite deep in the whole social media and very connected.
1: Yeah, no, I think the last 12 months, especially with the injustices happening here in the United States and globally, to be to be quite frank. Um, I think that it's really brought a lot of people invested in learning more about environmental justice, which is really great. But I think one of the dangers of that is the fact that Ally is not really doing that much work other than following someone, reposting their graphic. And after that, it's done after that month. Like I did my anti-racism work for the month. And so... I think one of the dangers that I kind of presented in my community when a lot of people were coming over my page is that this is intro 101. This is not the whole answer. This isn't to say that you will understand everything and that this is it for what you need to learn in your lifetime. And so that is one of the issues I had when it's limited is that telling people that my graphics aren't really for people that maybe are at my level or maybe just know about these already by connection, by work, but rather to extend themselves to think deeper. But one of the positive things that I feel like that my work has gotten is that being able to really shift the narrative of really telling people how much plastic I use every day, how imperfect I am when it comes to, you know, using plastic. And also when we talk about these conversation was like what's more sustainable like using a book or a digital book and I talk about like well we should be talking about natural resources and the bigger picture of this and so um, I think that's one of the ways I've been swaying my community to be like we love to talk about conscious products but like let's talk about water rights. Like, why is that an issue? Like, why are we arguing over a Brita filter versus a charcoal filter? We should be having more in-depth conversations of like what water rights are and like, why is water essential to our lives? And that's not controversial. That's a fact. We all drink water. And I think too, the other thing is like being influencing younger people to share this information. And one thing I've gotten actually from a message is Someone using my blog post as like zero waste being a human's right issue, kind of explaining the intersections of how, you know, plastic pollution, zero waste lifestyle movement, environmental justice, they actually use that in their local church. And it changed so many people's minds, perspectives about plastic free lifestyles that they tell me, you know, I'm still living a plastic free life. I'm trying to live my best as a plastic free lifestyle, but now I'm learning about environmental justice because of you and because the way you taught it. It really made me feel welcomed to understand this topic. And to me, that is what I see a shift in this movement. The last 12 months is that people's willingness to learn is very high and very critical now that they're not willing to kind of stray away from these conversations, that they're able to be extending their hands to me to be like, I want to learn, like I'm ready to learn. And that's one of the most strongest things, in my opinion, for a lot of people to do is telling yourself, You want to learn because not everyone's perfect and this isn't about being more woke or being more knowledgeable, but rather giving everyone a chance to not feel that shame.
0: Yeah, no. And I think this really allows us to circle back to this creation of a welcoming and safe space for people to learn, to ask questions, to not feel like they're going to be attacked or judged or shamed online, because it can be quite a polarizing place, the internet. And I think especially in this environmental space, there are so many opinions and there's so much verbal violence i find actually sometimes especially people who get very passionate about these topics and so how have you kept a healthy relationship with social media how have you also put boundaries up for yourself and how really do you continue to foster that welcoming safe space for your community to to grow with you
1: yeah, definitely. Um, I think for me, one of the things that I do is, set, is take weekends off. Like, I don't post anything on weekends. I don't read my emails only because I realized I did that every day for seven times a week, like the last three, like back in 2020. And it was so toxic for my health. And so I realized that was taking a toll on my brain, my body, my mind. And so that was one of the things I did. Another thing I did is actually did establish boundaries was that I'm not going to respond to emails if I'm off work. I'm not going to respond to DMs within that hour. Having boundaries with clients, understanding that they can't text me they have to email me if they want things. And that's been really influential for me. And another thing is also in creating safe spaces is to really not shame people in the comments. And I've seen this where it's like, well, who wouldn't know this? Duh, you know, like things like that, that people have commented, And instead of me saying, like, how dare you talk that way, maybe saying, like, well, you know, not everyone understands this way. And this is because not everyone lives in the same area as we do. And you need to also acknowledge that this community isn't just United States. I have people from Japan, people from London, the UK, people from different parts of the world following me. And so I tell them, like, we need to understand, like, this is the global perspective. And so... In that sense, it gets really good positive responses of people saying, like, you're right, I'm sorry about that. Rather than me screaming at them and saying, how dare you? Because at one point, I actually was saying those things, too. And so who am I to say, like, you know, I'm better than everyone in that sense. And so that is really good. And I think also filtering your comments with spam trolls, I think, has really been influential for me. I don't really read comments and so there I delete them if they really don't have anything substance to say about that content. If it's critical, of course, leave it there. But if it's something that's just plain hate messages Mm. or death threats, then those deserve to be deleted and blocked because I don't really have the time and capacity to deal with that type of energy. But that is something that I feel like as environmentalists, we take the responsibility to deal with uh, climate change deniers a lot.
0: Mm. I think that's great that you were able to do that and to create that healthy relationship because it would be so easy to fall in and yeah, especially death threats and everything. I mean, that's intense. But if uh, if you're able to sort of desensitize from that and just go okay delete block no worries and not let it like affect you then you can keep going with the work right so I think that's really great but this also kind of raises you know there's so many emotions I think around the climate and eco-anxiety is a common one people talk about that's been on the rise but then I also found that you actually have like a, a climate emotion scale framework so I'd love if you could share a little bit about that and kind of walk us through what the different things are.
1: Yeah, so for me, I, I created the climate skill framework only because I realized during the West Coast, um, when I was living in California, there was a lot of wildfires and it was so bad in Los Angeles like the whole sky was gray for a week. And I had remembered growing up how I was close to also wildfires, but never in my life actually had I seen so much something that was bad. When I was 21, I witnessed in Northern California, really bad wildfire that burned down cities And actually was really near my institution and I just remember having to be told like you still have to take your exam and perform well even if there's a natural disaster happening outside front front of our eyes like seeing in the skies and ashes and so the climate emotion scales was kind of a way for me to really organize these emotions for people that were experiencing either losing their homes and wildfires and so using the terms that were created, and some of them were coined by sustainability professor Glenn Albrecht, I created this array of emotions that looked into different emotions that look into like happiness, love, sadness, anger, shock, fear. Because what I realized is that eco-anxiety is the fear fear of the future of the planet. But in reality, a lot of people didn't even experience anxiety. Some people were witnessing trauma. Some people were witnessing grieving. And that was something that I felt like wasn't really emerged. And so I started off with like the first term being uteria, which kind of introduces the person to, you know, all of us have this love for the oneness of earth, which is means that like children most especially that are able to really have more deeper relationships with the soil is because that as we enter this technological era, a lot of us really are always on our phones, our computers, Netflix, anything that we really see that we strive away from natural landscapes and natural spaces that we kind of sometimes lose that relationship. And so what Euteria is saying is that at the end of the day, all of us as human beings, living beings on this earth, is that we have this interconnectedness in environment. And so when we kind of get deeper into the emotions, we kind of explore solophilia that looks more into the love of the interrelated whole, which then specifically describes that Steph, is there a certain place in your lifetime or a bioregion or an era that you went to growing up that you really felt deep rooted love for the earth? And this really spurred a lot of my followers to share their experiences of like, you know, for me, it was actually going to the river with my family every summer. We loved that area before it was polluted and we were able to really Get our community around there. We had so many picnics. We had so many good times. And so for me, that really brought people more to really not be so much afraid to talk about climate emotions. And then we kind of got deeper into this kind of confusion or this state of um, nostalgia, right? So nostalgia that looks into that sorrow, the anxiety one feels about their natural environment. And this kind of describes this emotion of People who grow up in their environments that would generally visit certain locations or see certain changes over time. And this can be easily done, of saying, like, you know, the trees down my block all got, you know, chopped down. The park I used to visit got closed down, and now luxury buildings are part of it. And so, what Solostalgia is kind of looking at is that how natural landscapes, natural areas are being taken away from our own eyes and although we don't really experience it instantly we experience it over years that you kind of look back and be like you know i really miss that place going i really miss going to that area and now it's not there now it's altered now it's destroyed and so this kind of gives this more sorrow feeling of like you're not really sad but you just feel bad internally. like oh i do miss that but um, as you get deeper, which is eco-anxiety, that like anxiety is a fear of the future, which a lot of people have, but one of the things that eco-anxiety is limited in is that how do you change that stage of anxiety to action or that anxi- that stage of anxiety to talking? And so what I witness here when you go from eco-anxiety to eco-paralysis or this like eco-shock or eco eco-avoidance, I would say, is that when you talk about the climate crisis, there are some people that don't really react in a certain way, or really they don't know what to say. And so for them, it's not that they don't care about the environment, it's the fact that their privileges in their life may have not really allowed them to experience this. And so this may be kind of a reality check for them to think like, well, like my environment changing, what does that mean for my family? What does that mean for my loved one? What does that mean for me? What does that mean in the future for my kids? And so this is kind of something that has been really emerging for a lot of people that they don't, not that they don't know what to do, but it's more of a shock to them that like, how do you explain this type of emotion? I mean, I guess when it comes to eco guilt, it's kind of this internalized, right? Internalized guilt that everyone has is like, what could I have done better? What can I do better? Why didn't I do better when I was younger? Why wasn't I asking these questions? Why wasn't I involved in more activist spaces? And this role is kind of like self-blaming and self-shaming for a lot of us. And so this kind of then translates to kind of eco-grieving where people that were losing their homes in the wildfire or hurricanes or storms are asking themselves, like, I'm literally grieving because we're losing so much landscape. We're losing so much ecosystems. The news keeps presenting how we're losing all these resources. I'm really sad. I don't know what to think. And so, I when I did this, I actually got so many messages from people who had had friends or loved ones that had their houses burned down, literally, Mm. and had seen it or had seen that their animals were left behind. And so it broke their heart. And so it really, it really, it got to me because I remember how terrible I felt and having to hold space for people to talk about it online as a community. They trusted me. It, It broke my heart to say that so many people lost their lives. and. Um, As you kind of get deeper then, when people experience these natural disasters, no one really talks about the psychological effects of the trauma that is carried. And a really sad example of this is how children may be experiencing tear trauma, which is like land-based trauma of them witnessing natural disasters take away their communities and wipe out their homes. That when first responders get to those children, they're not really well-equipped enough to treat them mentally. They know how to take care of them physically but the long-term health effects of them witnessing that is not really explained there's not really much studies and do we know that there are there children are there adults out there that are very scared for the next natural disaster to happen and so that is something that i feel like a lot of us don't really know how to comprehend or really dissect or unfold And so that is something that researchers have been actually looking into recently or in past studies. And then I guess the last one is this rage or ecological rage that a lot of us carry is that you're angry at the fact of how the system and certain people in power have allowed to these systems to oppress people of color generally, but also allow them to lose their environments, allow them to lose their homes. And so there is this really internal anger that a lot of people carry and a lot of we see this in activist spaces is that anger is valid anger is it should not be shamed but it's something that i think a lot of us feel angry is that now we're being told as consumers to shop less to not buy plastic to recycle but in reality is that going to change the system in the long term and so a lot of us carry this internal rage with ourselves. It's like, of course that isn't enough and we need to do enough. And so sometimes that translates bad But some people with the climate emotion scale because everyone's at different stages. And so at the, at the end of the day, how do we move from this scale to action? And so part of me for creating that emotion scale was to validate people's experiences, not to think that it's in their head or that they're wrong and not everyone has mental health resources, to even acts as a climate therapist. And so I saw this as a way to help people, give them that understanding of like, yes, understanding our emotions to the environment is beautiful, horrible, sad, but we need to reckon with all of these emotions that we have because this is what makes us better climate, this is what makes us better environmentalists rather than shaving these emotions away. And so that was really a really hard, thing for me to construct at the same time, but I felt like it helped so many people during that time. And I'm really glad that people are using the work now and like actually grad students are actually now using it. So it's been really surprising to see that.
0: Yeah. And uh, I think it's so important because it it's such a spectrum of emotion. You know, I think eco-anxiety is the term or eco-grief. I've heard a lot, you know, these are the ones that, but, but it's not just that. There is those paralyzing times. There are those guilty times. There are those angry times. And I think Having the terminology and the understanding that it's okay to go through all these different emotions, but to also help to identify them, must be so freeing. Because even when I read it, I was like, "Oh wow, yeah, okay." I actually totally got stuck on the paralyzing one last year because I got quite jaded with everything and with the virus and you know the pandemic and people wanting to return back to normal and not realizing that no, that that was not an okay normal. It should have never been like that. And you know, just grappling with all the things and it wasn't about fear. It was more about frustration. And I think just having that framework allowed me to also then identify a little bit more about where I was at again. And it is so cyclical, you know, that's the thing. Stuff happens, life's constantly changing and you go through the different emotions again, or you go back and forth on the scale, you know, it's not linear.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was one of the biggest things is that I want to tell people like our emotions are not linear we're all circular, but it really helped a lot of parents, I think. And, I, and that's, mm-hmm. I think my end goal was to like help them because how are children or youth actually complementalizing this while also dealing with other issues that are going on in their lives? Like, that was the thing that I feel like hopefully helped a lot of people through their times.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure it absolutely has. And it will continue to do as well, especially as people see it and discover it and then are able to share it in their own way. And then the work lives on in, in different aspects. And I think this kind of brings us to a really nice post you shared recently, which was why we should be imperfect environmentalist. I love this. I think it's so there's so much focus on doing things perfectly. And I know we touched on this briefly, but I think there's especially when people are starting out people use it as an excuse. I find quite often like, Oh yeah, no, it's too hard and I can't do it right. And blah, blah, blah. So I'm just not going to do it. But actually it is a journey and I think it's, it is okay to make mistakes. So maybe you can unpack a little bit more around that concept. Yeah. I
1: think for me, um, uh, something that I had realized, like just being an environmentalist, is like the amount of mistakes I did growing up. And also, you know, I was not vegan. I was only turned vegan when I was like 21. And so for me, I think you know, being an imperfect environmentalist is what makes you a better environmentalist because I had never read in news who was a perfect environmentalist. Like everyone has made mistakes. Even Greta has admitted to making a mistake. Like no one, no, we should never hold people into pedestals, but rather allow them to be part of our communities to be like, it's okay if you mess up because why we're all messing up actively rather than us ourselves saying like, oh, who we see online is is what we should be. And so I kind of wanted to disrupt that narrative is that normalize being imperfect for your mind, normalize being imperfect for your community, and normalize, most importantly, for your work. Because when you do that, you disrupt this narrative of like, it's okay to be wrong in your work. It then allows you to become more comfortable with yourself rather than then separating yourself of this illusion of you being a perfect environmentalist versus who you really are and so then that gap then increases, 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 that like you don't get to see who you are anymore. And so these like characteristics of what makes an environment is what you define yourself, right? And so mistakes should not be seen as negative, but things that you can actively improve on. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're an activist, right? Model, act, uh, photographer, educator, designer, consultant, writer. We are always being imperfect in our works, but that's what makes us more better to communicate this with other folks, is that we normalize this behavior for people. And so then it reinforces the idea that our environmentalism is different, yes, but that doesn't mean to say that our environmentalism is wrong. What makes us wrong is when we hold those standards that are very unrealistic for people, and that then damages either their mental health and their physical health. And so those are kind of the repercussions is that when we uphold perfectionism it's not really ideal for anyone in this society and so I tell people that imperfections are organic but perfectionism is not natural and that mm-hmm. doing the best of what you can do rather than what what you want to create in this unrealistic form can help better help you translate your environmentalism when you're focusing on those errors and you're focusing on your imperfections and recognizing those mistakes is Isn't a bad thing, like I said, right? There, instead, you see them as places to improve on. And yes, if you do hurt someone, apologize, be accountable for that. And being better is not seeking validation from others, but a form of self-love to undo that harmful work that we all hold of perfectionism. And yeah, when you speak about it, it really encourages so many people. And I've had so many people from my community saying like. You're one of the real environmentalists that I follow. Like, I love the fact that you're real with us and like, you, you, you use plastic and you post about it and you don't care. And this is what we, we need to influence so many people because I think social media is such a good tool to manipulate our emotions, especially younger generation. We've seen that with the suicide rates. We're seeing that with problems with youth, like online bullying, how that also benefits. And so how do I want to become a better advocate to disrupt that bullying? is that I'm going to show up of who I am really and tell people like I'm goofy, I'm a nerd, but also like I love being who I am and I don't want to be someone I'm not.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And uh, so now we're going to ask a couple of short paced questions uh, so you can just um, feel into it and then just give us your answers like more fast paced. And uh, if you can kind of repeat the answer as well, because these will be the ones that are probably going to be used in our Green Warrior video. That'll be a bit separate. So what does being a Green Warrior mean to you?
1: So one that advocates for the justice of life.
0: If you had the power to change the world, what would you do right now?
1: Decentralize systems of oppression.
0: Mm. If you could leave the world with one simple message, what would it be? Like if it was on a billboard?
1: Be ready to be wrong.
0: What did you question or unlearn in the last 12 months?
1: This is actually a hard one. I (laughs) think something that I unlearned is knowing the difference between accountability and negativity.
0: Mm. What's one thing you wish you knew earlier?
1: How many amazing environmentalists exist in this world?
0: What keeps you going or gives you your life joy?
1: Creating educational content for my community.
0: And how do you think we can live wide awake?
1: By exposing ourselves with different dimensions of perspectives.
0: Beautiful. Well, Isaiah, thank you so much. That was really wonderful to speak to you. And it's so much wisdom packed into this conversation and all of the work that you do. So we really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Yes. No, thank you so much again, Steph, for, for interviewing me and also giving me this opportunity and also just everything the team organized. So I'm really grateful to be here and everything. And I just can't wait to see how it unfolds but thank you so much again uh, really appreciate everything
0: yeah and uh, where can people follow you where's the best place for them to connect to you
1: yeah you can uh, reach out to me at careerboundvegan at gmail.com or careerboundvegan.com and also at careerboundvegan on any socials that you may wish to connect with
0: three things i'm taking away from this conversation with isaias Firstly, when wanting to understand about the intersections of environmentalism or deeply understand what we can actually do, a great place to start is to go back to the history and understand how it all evolved. Secondly, when it comes to the climate, there is a spectrum of emotions that we go through. It's messy, non-linear, and you know what? It's okay. Thirdly, let's normalize being imperfect and realize that mistakes are something we can actively improve on to be better environmentalists. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. If you enjoyed today's episode, do hit that subscribe button and consider supporting us. Until next time, live wide awake.